You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Job 10 verses 1 to 13. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favour the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as the as man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty, and there is no one to live to deliver out of your hand. Your hands fashioned me and made me, and now you destroy me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay. Will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these, yet these things you hid in your heart and I know that this was your purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tiana. Well, if you haven't met me before, my name is Luke and I'm the uh, pastor here at City on a Hill, Melbourne West, or one of the pastors. Uh, and today we continue our series left and right and we come up to the topic of euthanasia. It's a pretty heavy topic, a very heavy topic. And, and over the last couple of weeks we've been having Q&A after the sermon. We won't actually be doing that today. It just didn't quite feel right after the topic. But if you have questions, please still feel free uh, to send them in. Just go to service.coawest.com and you can pop your question in there and I can try and address it during the week. Uh, also, please make sure you follow along if, with those notes there. There's a couple of things that I'll refer to as we go along. But how about I uh, pray as we get into it? Father God, we want to thank you for the chance to come together as your people to study your word and to think through tough questions, tough issues. Uh, we thank you that you offer us uh, your wisdom and we pray that we might be able to see that and receive that and learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the word euthanasia means literally good death. It comes from the Greek you good, thanatos, death, euthanasia, good death. And we use it to describe the deliberate, intentional death of a terminally ill patient to limit their suffering. It might be done directly by a doctor on the request of a patient, or it may be assisted suicide, where a doctor helps the patient end their own life by providing them the drugs that they'll use to do it. There has long been a campaign to make euthanasia legal in Australia. It was briefly legal in the Northern Territory in the mid-90s until the federal government overrode that particular law. In recent years, however, all the states and territories have moved to legalise it. Victoria was the first with the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act, which came into place in 2019. On the Department of Health website, you see this description, voluntary assisted dying must be voluntary and initiated by the person themselves and is usually self-administered. Only those who are already dying from an incurable, advanced and progressive disease, illness or medical condition are able to access voluntary assisted dying. You see there some of the provisos they're trying to provide around that, that the patient's condition must be assessed by two medical practitioners. There must be a, a clear prognosis that they face death within the next six months. They must be over the age of 18 and have decision-making capacity. They need to be cogent enough to make this decision. It's important to clarify here what euthanasia is not, because there is a difference between taking a life and withdrawing treatment. Now, there are situations where a doctor must make a choice between intervening to save a patient's life or continuing treatment when all uh, medical hope has gone. Two basic questions kind of frame the medical response. Is there a genuine hope of survival for the patient and are we able to help them? This will determine, for instance, how a doctor uses a life support system. If there's no hope of survival, they may turn off that system if it's only prolonging life, then the treatment may be stopped to allow the 
underlying disease to have its way. In such a situation, explains Megan Best, a Christian doctor and ethicist specialising in end-of-life care, it's not flicking the switch that kills the patient, it's the underlying disease that does so. That's why they were on life support in the first place. She sees it very similar with medication. Sometimes treatments at the end of life which are aimed at prolonging life either stop working, they become futile, or the burden of side effects such as nausea and vomiting can rule out any benefits by way of extra time. In such a situation, the treatment may not be prolonging life so much as prolonging the process of dying. And so it's an ethical choice to withdraw their treatment. These clarifications hopefully help us see what euthanasia is. As John Stott puts it, there is a fundamental difference between causing somebody to die, which is euthanasia, and allowing them to die, which is not. That's what we're talking about today, causing a patient to die, the deliberate ending of someone's life, either through assisting them to commit suicide or by a doctor directly ending their life through an administration of drugs. That's what people are asking for the right to do, for a patient to choose when and how they die and for a doctor to be given permission to help them do this. This is, of course, hugely controversial. As you may know, uh, doctors live by an ancient code of ethics, basically summarised as do no harm. This was articulated in the Hippocratic Oath, formulated uh, two and a half thousand years ago. I will do no harm or injustice to my patients. I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan. So given that, euthanasia seems hypocritical, doesn't it? How can you promise to do no harm and then kill someone? How can people make a case for this? What are the arguments that people are using in favour of euthanasia? Well, I think it's essentially that they have this desire for a good death, a death without, with a minimum of suffering and more dignity. First of all, there is this great fear of suffering. Just imagine a patient with motor neuron disease. We can probably all imagine it because we see it with Neil Danaher, the ex-Melbourne, ex-Essendon player and Melbourne coach. Every year at the Queen's birthday footy game, we see the big freeze where they get all of these celebrities up at the MCG and they go down this big slide into an ice bath and it's all kind of fun. And yet there's always this shadow over all of it, isn't there? Because every year we see Neil get sicker and sicker. Motor neuron disease is a horrific disease that slowly destroys a person. Begins with weakness in your legs or your ankles, a weak grip, perhaps you trip over, drop a pen inadvertently. Over time, your speech starts to get slurred, you get muscle cramps and twitches. And then as the disease progresses, the symptoms get worse and worse, moving around, breathing, swallowing all become increasingly difficult. Often people need a feeding tube eventually. People have coughing fits and feel like they're choking. Some patients start to lose their cognitive ability. Now, just imagine getting a diagnosis of motor neuron disease and knowing that that is all ahead of you. That's your fate. See, for many people, the prospect of something like this, the dreadful anticipation of it all, is enough to make them want to have the option of euthanasia. I read a study during the week from the UK where uh, the authors asked a number of people who were terminally ill about their views on euthanasia. Uh, one person uh, in the study described spending a month in a hospice where they'd seen multiple people come through and pass away. And they say, if I've, I've seen what happens at the end and if I could avoid it happening to me, I would. Simple as that. Uh, another man suffering progressive multiple sclerosis, another horrible disease, hated the thought of losing function and being dependent on others. He'd worked at a, a nursing home and saw the pain and the indignity that others went through and he didn't want that for himself. 
Most of all, they didn't want to have that cognitive impairment. If I have a stroke that leaves me paralysed, he says, leaves me brain dead, then I don't want to live like that. I don't, and why should I? I've seen people, you could show a mirror and they would say, who's that? And they don't know who it is. But the soul has gone as far as I'm concerned, if that's what happens. I don't want to be like that. Of course, behind all of this, there is this great desire for dignity. Euthanasia laws in the US state of Oregon, for instance, are called the Death with Dignity Act because that's what we're, we want to have. A terminal illness just destroys people so slowly and horribly and they, they lose themselves. See, that person in the hospital bed, propped up, perhaps semi-conscious, in pain, on morphine, if you went back to their home, you would find photos all over the wall, photos of them with their kids, their grandkids. Perhaps it's a photo with their, with their spouse in front of one of the pyramids, this great adventure that they went on. And you look at all of these photos and you see someone who's alive, but they've lost all of that. They're reduced in so many ways. Here they are in a sterile hospital room or perhaps at home, stuck in bed all day, and this place of all of these precious, happy memories with their family has become the place where they decline. Are these the kinds of memories that we want people to have to leave? Is this, is this how you want to go? Someone else from that study spoke of watching their mother suffer they didn't want to go through the same. I just think that when you've come to that stage, only you know when that is, how bad that has to be. You don't need to go through the physical indignities of throwing up, of being smelly, of being incontinent, whatever it might be. And so the argument goes, surely these people deserve to die with dignity. I mean, the disease has taken everything else. So surely they should have that little right left to at least decide how it ends. Surely they should have the right to a good death. And I think as, as humans, we feel this sense of compassion. And particularly as, as Christians, we should feel a sense of compassion. We serve a God who is a compassionate God who comes to the brokenhearted. And so surely within us we feel a great wrestling around this, a sense that perhaps that is what's right, maybe that is what we should be doing. And yet I don't think it is. I think we need to oppose euthanasia because in euthanasia I think we are taking an enormous step crossing a line into new territory, dangerous territory, because we're saying that it's now permissible to end a human's life, to allow them to kill themselves or for us to kill them, and that we have the right to do this regardless of what God thinks. This is a big step and it sends a message to society about life, about death and the very value of humanity itself. So let me unpack some of the, the reasons why I think we should oppose this. First of all, it's the value of life. We must remember that euthanasia is the taking of a human life, a precious human life. Life is, of course, God's great gift. It comes from him. He created us. Job 10, your hands fashioned and made me. He gives life to us. Job 33, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life and he sustains that life. Job 10, 12, you have granted me love, life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. So we stay alive as long as God is doing that. And so no human has the right to take away the life that God has given. I mean, God has the right, Job 12, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Or Psalm 104, all things look 
to God for life, and when you take away their breath, they die. So, so we are suspended within the realm of God's providence and his protection, his sovereignty, and he gets to choose what happens with those, the life that he gives us. Now, sometimes he does command us to take the life of others in a situation perhaps like a, a just war. But we must not assume that we have that right in most circumstances. Exodus 20, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You shall not take the life of another human. Then there are very serious consequences for anyone who does. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So anyone who takes a human life effectively forfeits their own. That's how serious it is. And do you see the reasoning here? Human life is so valuable because God made man, humanity, in his image. This is the unique distinction of humanity, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. That's what makes us so special. Flowers are beautiful. Mountains are immense. My wife always teases me because she constantly hears me telling my cat that he's a noble creature. But humans are different. Humans are unique. Humans are glorious because we are made in God's image. And that means that we have this inherent dignity and majesty that's unique to all creation. This is the basis for all human dignity, for all human rights. All people are valuable young and old, rich or poor, black or white, and the sick and elderly as well. And I think euthanasia undermines that. You see, as a number of people have pointed out, uh, when you make a law, it starts to educate. It starts to define what is acceptable in a society and how we live and what we should be like. And there is a lot of evidence that shows that when euthanasia is legalised, it starts to dramatically change the way the society thinks about the value of human life. An Australian study from Professor Hayden Walters and Associate Professor Marion Harris looked at overseas jurisdictions that had legalised euthanasia and found that while initially legalised for the terminally ill, euthanasia numbers and eligibility criteria expand with time as it becomes normalised and socially acceptable. The trajectory for euthanasia once legalised is always expansion. So first, the numbers expand. Once it's an option, it quickly becomes something that many people embrace. In the Netherlands, new laws were brought in legalising euthanasia in 2002. In the first decade, the number of deaths by euthanasia doubled. The next five years, it increased by 75%. There's this constant kind of growth. It's a similar story in Canada. In the first year that euthanasia was legalised, 2016, 1,000 Canadians were euthanised. In 2021, it was 10,000, an increase of tenfold in just five years. And secondly, the eligibility criteria expands as well. First, it might be for terminal illnesses or degenerative medical conditions like cancer, motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, but soon it starts to extend to stretch to include other things, uh, alcoholism, tinnitus, even loneliness. There was a landmark, landmark test case in Holland in the early 90s where 50-year-old Hilly Bosher said that she wanted to die after the deaths of her two children and the subsequent breakup of her marriage. A bill was tabled in the Netherlands in 2020 to allow euthanasia for those over 75 who simply felt that they had completed their life didn't have a terminal illness, they were completely healthy, but they felt like they were done. In Belgium, meanwhile, even children can be deemed eligible if they have a terminal illness. As one uh, attorney says, no civilised society allows children to kill themselves. Far from a compassionate law, this law hands the equivalent of a loaded gun to a child with the astonishing belief that the child should be free to pull the trigger if he or she so chooses. And this starts, this, this idea about life and death starts to spread 
to bleed into the society. Uh, depression is now one of the legal grounds for euthanasia in, in a number of places, and surely that's problematic. You see, normally if someone is suicidal, we try everything we can to help them. We offer them counselling. We send in a cat team. We invite them to call Lifeline because we want them to stay alive. We want to do everything we can to help them and support them. But with euthanasia, we're now assisting people in their suicide. And that's actually changing the view of suicide more broadly. So in the Netherlands, where it's legalised, uh, the rates of suicide for non-ill, uh, not terminally ill people have skyrocketed. And so it seems that when you allow some people to end their lives, others do too. As Megan Best writes, laws once introduced and normalised over time have an educative effect. Euthanasia laws legitimise the choice of suicide as a solution to our problems. Is that the message we want to send? And it's inevitable that as this happens, it starts to build up a kind of pressure for those who are dying. As Akos Balog writes, if it's acceptable to someone with a terminal diagnosis to kill themselves, it's not long before what is acceptable shifts to becoming good and even right. So we know already that many people feel like that they are a great burden to their loved ones if they're sick or they're dying. Just, just imagine if you're in that position, living in a nursing home or a palliative care hospice. Your family comes to visit, but you know it's hard. Your daughter has three kids. She's working full time. She lives on the other side of the city. Every time she comes, she looks stressed and worn out, confused and heartbroken, overwhelmed. You don't want her to go through that. And what are the financial costs? I mean, it costs a lot to keep people alive, medication, tests, accommodation, the cost of carers, doctors, healthcare workers. And this can make people feel guilty. Either guilty for their family, you know, like you've tried to provide for your family all your life. You want to give the best for your children and now you feel like you're, you're, you're making life so hard for them. You don't want that. Or perhaps you get the sense that there is a pressure from the society In such a situation, if euthanasia is possible, it would stand to reason that people would start to feel pressured to do it. As Wayne Grudem writes, nations that have allowed for physician-assisted suicide find that a society can quickly move from merely allowing the right to die to the belief that there is an obligation to die on the part of the elderly and the very ill who are draining resources from the society. Worst of all, there's evidence that some people are killed without their consent. There's some horrific stories from the Netherlands. In one report from uh, a number of years ago, they found that in the preceding year, there were 1,040 cases of involuntary euthanasia. 14% of these patients were fully competent. 72% of them had given no indication that they wanted euthanasia. Doctors knew that for 8% of these patients, there were other treatments that were available. On top of this, 8,000 patients died from, uh, from pain, medical, uh, pain medication overdose, overdoses, 61% of them coming without patient consent. As the Catholic Archbishop Anthony Fisher asked rhetorically, if the suffering of some people is to be resolved by killing them or assisting them to kill themselves, why not the chronically but not terminally ill, the mentally but not physically ill, those unable to consent because they're unconscious or too disabled or infants? Why restrict the mercy to dying consenting adults? Indeed, it's actually legal in Holland, I believe, to kill severely handicapped newborns. As one uh, Dutch paediatrician put it, both for the parents and the children, an early death is better than life. The Australian bioethicist Margaret Somerville writes, once we cross 
the clear line that we must not intentionally kill another person. There's no logical stopping point. And the tragedy of this is that each and every one of these people is precious to God, made in his image and sacred. G.K. Chesterton writes, people are equal in the same way that pennies are equal. Some are bright, others are dull, some are worn smooth, others are sharp and fresh, but all are equal in value because each penny bears the image of the sovereign, just like each person bears the image of the king of kings. Every life is valuable because God has given us that life. And do you see what's happening? Wherever euthanasia is practised, what is deemed best for the individual starts to become detrimental for the society. It starts to create a culture of death. There's a haunting proverb in the Bible, Proverbs 8.36, all who hate me love death. And I think there's something about that that's happening in our world, a kind of defiance of God. God is the one who gives life and controls it and has the right to that life. But here we see humans subverting that, taking that right for themselves, presuming to take that power. And when this happens, death, when we try to take control of death, it turns out we can't control ourselves. And yet, despite all that, we, we can kind of say theologically and ethically that this is the wrong thing to do but we're still left with the pastoral issue, the social issue of suffering and death. What does the Bible say about that? See, the big argument made for euthanasia is that it's compassionate, that it relieves the pain of those who are suffering. But it's worth interrogating this a little bit. You see, studies have shown that something like 85% of people want the option of euthanasia. Like the vast majority of people want that option. And yet when people might actually need it when they're terminally ill and in palliative care, those numbers shrink in an extraordinary way. Research in Sydney found that only 2.5% of patients asked about euthanasia when they went to a palliative care clinic, and only 1% requested it once care had commenced. What that's saying is that actually there are a lot of good treatments for people nowadays. Palliative care is generally exceptional and would be even better if it was funded more. So there are ways to die naturally and with dignity. Uh, Dr. Robert Twycross is a, a Christian doctor who helped pioneer hospices in the 1970s, and he would say to patients, not only will we enable you to die with dignity, but we will enable you to live before you die. So that is there. Why then is there this great push for euthanasia at a time and in a place where we have better treatments than ever before? I'd like to suggest that it's because our culture lacks the spiritual resources to go through death. Now, Megan Best talks about what she calls the existential slap when someone faces death. You see, we're very insulated from death in our culture. We don't know it. We don't see it. Many people die in hospital. You might have seen one or two corpses in your life, almost certainly not in your own home. We've taken death away from us. See, in the past, you'd be reminded of death all the time. You, you would walk through the village and you'd see the church and there'd be a graveyard. You're constantly reminded of the reality of death, of where we're all ending up. Now our loved ones are cremated or they're, they're taken off to a, an enormous memorial park on the other side of the city. We're not confronted with that very often. And we refuse to think about death, really, even when people die. So on your website, you'll see the, uh, an ad from Tobin Brothers, the 
the website there of their funeral home, and you just look at that image. There's people smiling, enjoying life together. The slogan, celebrating lives, almost to the point of ignoring the fact that there is a death here. And there's this happy family eating together. Like It almost looks like a holiday picture, but it's talking about a funeral. And so with all of this, we've made death completely foreign. We've pushed it outside of us, and so it's unknown. We don't know how it works, what it's like. In fact, it's so unfamiliar to us, so other, that we almost might imagine that it will never come for us. Paul Fairfield, the philosopher, says, we live in a death-denying society. Death is for others. It happens to strangers, not to the people around us and certainly not to us. And all that means that when people face death themselves, particularly a long, painful death, they just don't know what to do. As Best puts it, no one knows how to die anymore. And she explains that actually it takes a lot of work to die well. There is a sense where you have to do a lot of work. You have to think through stuff. You have to resolve conflict, perhaps. You have to ultimately feel comfortable about what's going to happen after you die. But because we're so unfamiliar with it, because we don't have the spiritual resources, people are lost. She writes, the sufferer feels alienated from those around her as if on the ocean in a rowboat without any oars. What a terrifying thought. Stuck on the seas not knowing how to go forward or how to go back, marooned in a psychological terror. As she writes, in a society that has forgotten the meaning of suffering, there is understandably a lack of willingness to endure it. But I think in the Bible and in Christianity, we can find those resources. I think we see some of the insights into that in our reading from Job. Job, of course, had experienced all the horrors of this world. He'd been struck by tragedy, by the loss of possessions, by the loss of family, by the loss of his own health. And you sense the agony and the frustration in his words. Verse 1, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And, and this bitterness, this complaint is clearly being directed towards God. Verse 3, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands? Verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me and now you have destroyed me altogether. There's a real honesty here. There is a groaning under the reality of suffering and death. And yet despite all that, there is also this extraordinary faith and humility. See, famously, Job's wife had encouraged him to end it all. Chapter 2, verse 9, curse God and die. It's almost an invitation to euthanasia. If you curse God, he'll destroy you. Just end it. But Job refused to do this. He replies to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He's saying, shall we not accept the difficulties of life along with the good, the, the sorrows along with the joys? Like it's all part of that. You see, Job understood, I think, where death and suffering comes from ultimately. Because death does not belong in God's world. It's an intrusion. When we read the first pages of the Bible, we find that humans weren't made to die or to suffer. Suffer. We were made to live forever. Adam and Eve had life and the promise of a full and forever life with God. That's how God designed it and that's how life is fulfilling and meaningful. That's what makes life good. Psalm 16, you've made known to me the, what, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's why death feels so foreign to us, so objectionable. It's not supposed to be here. We're supposed to have life. That's what God gave humanity. But then in the Bible, as we read on, we discover that Adam and Eve forfeited that because they disobeyed God. 
In chapter 2, as God gives them life, he also gives them the terms of that life. Verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was an invitation for them to trust him. He's saying, I've given you life and now I know what's best for you and I want you to trust that. Trust your creator. Tragically, of course, they didn't. Genesis 3, they take the forbidden fruit, and as they do so, as soon as they do so, death invades the garden, bringing with it the slow decay of ageing, the poison of sickness and death, the yawning horror of loss. So I think the Bible makes sense of death by explaining where it comes from and why it's here. It doesn't belong. It's always foreign, and so we can always grieve it. And yet we must also humbly acknowledge that it's come because of human sin. And so in the midst of that, just like Job, we need to turn to God. In our grief and in our frustration, we need to turn to him in faith. Job 10, 12, you have granted me life and steadfast love, And your care has preserved my spirit. In the midst of everything, he still holds on to God. He still turns to God. He's grappling with all of this stuff. But he wants to do it with God rather than apart from God. And I think that points to the second key thing for us to to understand how to die, how to suffer. And that is submission to God rather than a demand for control. See, I think underneath everything else, as we think about euthanasia, there is this desire for control. And that's right in the deepest part of humanity, right from the very start, the most ancient of our fragilities. We see it in the Garden of Eden when the devil offers Adam and Eve the chance, the promise of being God. When you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's offering them the promise of control, the power to choose their own destiny. And that's what all humans have wanted ever since. And that's why suffering is just so unacceptable to us. We want to be gods, creating our own worlds. And if that was possible, then of course our worlds would never have suffering or ageing or disease. We would be totally powerful at all times. And so within that mindset, because that's our goal, our wish, then suffering doesn't fit. It never makes sense. We hate it. We we resent it. And so we try to get rid of it. Suffering ruins our plans. It interrupts them. Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, once described death as, as being like at a party and then being told to leave. It's such a powerful image because that's what it feels like, doesn't it? We have this life that we're in the the full stream of. We're we're following the stream of life and we're loving that. We're we're involved and we're engaged and we want to see how the story continues. want to find out what happens to our kids and our grandkids, who wins the premiership in 2052 or whatever it is. We want to keep going and then death just puts a stop to that. It says, no, you've got to go home now. We hate that. Ultimately, we resent death because it highlights our weakness. Gods aren't supposed to be weak. They're supposed to be able to do whatever they want. Gods aren't supposed to die. They're supposed to be immortal. Perhaps that's even why we push the sick and the dying out of our lives. We don't want to be reminded of our weakness any more than we have to because we want to be God. We want to take control over our own lives and our own deaths, we want to make the final decision. If we have to die, then we should be allowed to choose how and when. But I think if we want to die well, we need to give that up. We need to turn to God in our suffering and our dying to accept that he is God and not us to give up on that desire for control, to acknowledge him as Lord and King, to allow him to set the direction of our life, all of our lives and the end of our lives. 
We need to have the heart of the prophet Jeremiah. Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. And I think if we are willing to do that, if we're willing to give control to Jesus, then we will find him with us in the dying and at the end of it. You see, Jesus, our creator, the one who gave life to all people, the one in whom is life, John 1.4, he came to this earth to overcome death by dying himself. It was sin that brought death into the world. So Jesus died to take sin out of the world. He died for our sins, making it possible for us to be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead, making it possible for us to rise from the dead too and to live with God forever. And that means that we can have a hope in our dying because we can know that there's something beyond it. There is something beyond the grave. At the end of life, there is a new life, an eternal life where everything will be changed. Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So there is hope for us beyond the grave and so that helps us in our suffering, in our dying because we know that there is something beyond. That's incredible, that's wonderful, but there's even more to it than that. See, it's not only that Jesus is at the end of the suffering, he's there in it too. He's not just there after death. He wants to be there in the dying. Because, of course, Jesus knows what dying's like. Matthew Kirkpatrick says, Death is unique. There's nothing in life quite like it. Everything that we experience in life we know about because, quite literally, we have lived to tell the tale. We can also draw upon other people's experiences and compare them to our own, gaining greater understanding of what we've gone through and how to interpret it. Death, however, is something quite different. Death is like a doorway through which you cannot see and from which no one returns except Jesus. Jesus did die and he returned. He experienced death. And so when you are dying, he will come and help you. We see all through his ministry that Jesus went to those who were suffering, to the vulnerable, to the broken, to those in pain. He empathises with them. He gave them his strength. And so he comes to those who are dying to support them and to strengthen them showing them his comfort and his presence, making sense perhaps of the suffering and drawing close when things seem impossible. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You see, the God who gives life decides when to give it away, take it away. And so even in the last stage of your life, he has a purpose. You will never cease to be made in his image. You are still valuable to him and he will continue to work in and through you even in those last days. A couple of years ago, uh, my niece, Lara, was diagnosed with a brain tumour. She was 12 years old. She'd had a very hard life. She'd had leukaemia twice Radiotherapy saved her life, but then also ended it by giving her the brain tumour. It was horrific when we got the diagnosis. We knew that it wasn't going to be long, six months. We knew some of what it would be like for her as her life ended, the way her body would shut down and she would lose everything. My brother and his wife shared this morning about how hard it was, particularly at the end, the paralysis that took over her body, the blindness that she felt. At one moment she said to her dad, like, 
I know there's hearing aids. Are, are, there, are there seeing aids? Just wanted to see one more time. And in those last couple of weeks, it was the hardest of all. I remember visiting her, my wife and I visiting her, and she was basically just asleep and moaning and so on. And, you know, at that point, she, she could have been euthanised. You know, there is a part of us that just wants that pain to go away, right? But as Zach and Amber were sharing this morning, it was actually in those last couple of weeks that they saw some of the most beautiful things of all, special conversations with her, amazing moments where it became absolutely clear that her faith was real, that her faith was deep. And there was this sense as she was leaving this life that she was being welcomed home to the next, that Jesus was on the other side. In Christianity, in the hope of Jesus, it is truly possible for us to have a good death. My wife Ivana reminded me the other day of a quote she'd heard a while ago. All our lives we're preparing to die. It's true, isn't it? We are all, each one of us, going to die. Even in our living, we are dying. Every day that we live, we get closer to the day of our death. And what will death be like for us? What does it hold for us? Now, for some of us, it will be sudden and unexpected. It will be like a thief in the night. For others, it will be slow but peaceful. I always remember my grandmother, the first person I was close to passing away. She was 81. She'd been incredibly healthy to the last three weeks of her life. So slight sickness And then my parents going to see her the day that she passed away and she was there in her bed, fell asleep, and that was it. A beautiful way to die. But for some of us, it will be slow and difficult and painful. How will we face that? However it looks for you or for me, though, we can prepare now we can start dying well. We can be ready, first of all, to meet God. Romans 14, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us, when we die, will face our creator and will have to give an account for how we've lived. I don't know about you, but there's so many things that I'm ashamed of, that I know that I've done wrong, that I know need to be forgiven. And in Christ, we can have that hope. Christ has died for my sins. He has paid for all that I have done that is wrong. And so now I can stand before him. And when I have to give an account for myself, I can point to Jesus. Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When God's glory is manifest, we can actually welcome that because it will show Christ's goodness and our safety. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus tonight, you have no condemnation. So are we confident of that? Are we ready? Because if we are, then we can approach life and death with a new freedom. That's what I love when I see the Apostle Paul. He lived with a boldness and an assurance because he knew what was on the other side. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He wasn't scared of death because he knew that he was safe. There was life beyond it. And so he lived with freedom, 
Philippians 1, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew that Christ was after the grave and so his life here was Christ as well. And so in a culture that is allergic to death and afraid of death, we can die well, pointing people to the God that we trust in. We can live well. Jesus came to give life and life to the full. So we can enjoy all of the goodness that savour the goodness of our Father that he's given to us in this life. We can fill this life with the loved ones that are so precious and important. We can fill it with good work that honours God and uses our gifts. We can fill it with serving the people around us and showing the love of God in human form all around us. And then as life changes, as we get older or we get sicker, we can show that God is present even through there. We can hold his hand as he carries us through the dying, into death, and beyond to eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, this is a deep and a heavy topic. We grieve the reality of death. We acknowledge that it is not what you planned. Well, you were sovereign, you knew what would happen, but it is not part of your perfect creation. It's come through sin and we are sorry for our sin. We mourn and we grieve the presence of decay, the horror of sickness, the ultimate end of death. But we thank you that you came to give life beyond death, that Jesus, you died to suck the sin, the poison out of this world. We thank you that you rose again, and so we can know that we can rise again. Help us to trust in you, to give up the desire for control and to let you rule our lives, every part of it and the end of it. Lord, draw close to us in the suffering and in the difficulty, in the pain. Lord, thank you that you are compassionate. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, may we fear no evil, for you are with us. You have given us breath. We thank you for that. And as long as we are breathing, may we honour you with it. Our life is in your hands. And we thank you that these are the best hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.